Welcome to The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Becky Scher. And I'm Michael Broadcorp. Today we are here with our first show of 2024. We are joined today by Sarah Gad, who is a congressional candidate in Minnesota's 5th Congressional District, running to defeat Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. We recently had another candidate for the seat, Don Samuels, on the podcast, and are excited to be joined by Sarah today. Sarah is a Minnesota native and works as a defense and criminal rights attorney in Hennepin and Anoka County. Sarah previously ran for Congress in Illinois' first congressional district back in 2020. With Sarah, we are going to discuss her path in life and some struggles on the way that led her to where she is today. We will break down why she is running for Congress and what she is hearing on the campaign trail. And we will end by breaking down why she thinks she can defeat Omar in 2024. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Well, Becky, uh, Happy New Year to you. It's now 2024. I just want to start off by saying Happy New Year to you and your family. And thanks for doing this podcast for another year. Yeah. Happy New Year to you guys as well. It's uh, wild and crazy that it's 2024 already. That's right. Um, Let's do a quick little bit of year review. Uh, we just finished 2023. Just for just a minute or so, let's kind of go through what we thought was the top stories of 2023. She lead it off. Well, we had to throw it back a little bit. Um, it seems like it was completely a different year. But if you remember, in 2023, the trifecta up at the Capitol spent our $18 billion surplus plus some. It's a pretty big story. It's a big start. Yeah. And um, the tipping off of that, which is a subject I want to get into in 2024, is the, the new state office building. It's going to be a big a big amount of money. That was a big story from last year. Certainly was. And then, of course, the I think the we can talk about kind of the overall progressive shift of the legislature and the agenda, but one huge, massive story was the Minnesota state flag. It's certainly gotten a lot of response, both sides. Which is the subject of our current episode, the episode that we just released, just finished. We just did a uh, episode about the Minnesota state flag with uh, Carl Yeager, who, which was just a fantastic episode. Great downloads on that episode. I would encourage people to listen. But the state flag still continues to be a hot topic. And I think coming into the upcoming legislative session, I have a feeling there's going to be uh, this debate isn't over with, which would be the most Minnesotan thing, that this debate over the flag is not over with. Absolutely. And one last one that we can't forget is the infamous Trump uh, mugshot having to, uh, you know, go through his indictments and, and, you know, turn himself in and get that so mugshot. As we enter now, it's, 2020, a wild little year and, um, it's officially 2024 now today. A lot of, uh, what's your take on what's coming up at both the state and national uh, state and national level this year? So at the national level, I think the biggest thing that's going to be on people's minds is the presidential primary. On both sides, I think we know that it's going to likely be a Biden versus Trump, but anything can happen. There's still a, a relatively crowded field on the Republican side. Who knows what Trump's going to ha- what's going to happen with Trump on the ballot? So I am, you know, waiting with bated breath to see how Super Tuesday goes. These different states, how they come in and how the numbers are shaking out for the different candidates on the Republican side. I would agree. I think the presidential race is going to be tricky, particularly for you and I, as we talk about it this cycle. Um, Neither of us are big Trump fans. I agree with you that it's going to be, I think it's going to be Trump versus Biden. Um, I just don't know uh, how that dynamic is going to change. It's going to shift. 
So that's what we have at the national level. At the state level here in Minnesota, we have the big elections are control the Minnesota House of Representatives. Um, it is now January 1st, um, and we're and in Minnesota, we also have a race for the United States Senate. A sleepy race so far, but my uh, all indications are that I think Republicans are going to have a candidate that's going to run, and we're going to be having a, a I think, a qual- hopefully a quality United States Senate race in Minnesota. Uh, running against Klobuchar is tough. Um, but I have faith that I think there'll be a good issue-driven campaign. At least that's my hope. Maybe I'm overly optimistic in this new year, uh, but that's my hope. It will be is there'll be a good, there'll be a battle for the House in Minnesota, House of Representatives. There'll be a U.S. Senate race, and then we'll be dealing with a presidential race, which I have a feeling it's not going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Certainly agree. And as you mentioned, issues. I know we're going to kind of hit some key issues, but I think it is going to be certainly interesting to see. How the race for the majority in the Minnesota House goes, whether um, we Republicans are able to kind of tout some of the the far reaching moves that the Dem- Democrats did this last cycle, or if people, because as we mentioned before, a lot of these new laws are not enacted until after twenty twenty four. If if that's not going to be seen, um, you know, we tend to have that pendulum swing back and forth, you know, every couple of years here in the Minnesota House. So it's going to be interesting to see um, how voters feel as we move forward towards 2024 election. All right. We want to encourage our listeners. We're on social media at, at BB Breakpod for all of across all social media platforms. So please hit us up in 2024 for tips, suggestions discussion items for the podcast and what you think is at stake. We're going to be having a much more robust social media engagement over this year. We want to hit things off right. So please follow us at, at BB Break Pod on YouTube, Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and at our website. You can leave comments and we're going to be doing a much more engagement this cycle. So appreciate listeners engaging with us. New Year's resolutions. Are you a New Year's resolution person? You know, I try to. I don't really, you know, make it a hard and fast rule, but I think it's always a good refresh of of starting to do things differently, you know, reach towards goals. Um, my husband and I actually were filming this on New Year's Day. Today we are going through um, our, a list of some kind of prompts of goals, manifestations in different areas um, as far as work and family and home and health and all of that. So uh, we're going to be setting some of those today. But my biggest one so far is I'm, I'm aiming to move more, be a little bit more physically active. Um, we are going to be trying to have a second baby. And my first pregnancy was pretty rough. So whoa. getting more physically fit can only help that whole process. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back up a bit. You kind of buried the lead there. Yeah. Hey, goal for twenty twenty four. That's congratulations. That's great news. Well, we're not we're not there oh, the- yet, but we're you know that's the goal is that we'll be hopefully adding to our our family here Fantastic. in the next year. Or so that's yeah, a great thanks. plan. Fantastic. So Fantastic. stay tuned if I if I do get pregnant and and am as sick as I was last time. We're gonna have to have a bucket on the side, so that mute button will be in high performance. That's great. That's great. We'll we'll make sure to have a bucket. And as a parent. Myself, my kids are older now, but buckets are really important when you're a parent. <laughs> in the car, just generally, I didn't realize how much a bucket was just an integral part of being a parent. You just need a bucket. And parents just, need them too. Parents yeah, need buckets. Sure do. Um, what about you? Any resolutions? Are you a resolution guy? I, I'm a I'm a all throughout the year kind of resolution guy. I always try to do better. I, here's how I view the New Year's as kind of a it's a it's a kind of a 
a good opportunity, I think, to mainstream mental health, physical health, your overall well-being. I think people are much more willing to just engage in that types of subjects. And there's just a lot more of good information about that type of stuff. That's what I like about this time of year, because uh, I think there's everyone's kind of doing kind of a hard reset. I, I think anyone who doesn't say that they do resolutions in some way uh, is full of it. We all do resolutions. And so you meet these people who are like, oh, I don't do resolutions and I refuse to, you know, blah, 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 blah. Oh, come on. We all do it. We all get sentimental this time of year. We all want to do a hard reset. And that's one thing. It's one advantage. And and not to preach resolutions. It's one advantage I think that I do like about this time of year is that there just seems to be much more awareness about everybody trying to take care of themselves. You see a lot of articles about, you know, getting fit, getting active getting steps in, a better diet, better mental health components. I'm a big believer in all that type of stuff. I'm not trying to turn into Tony Robbins here and, and preach a bunch of stuff, but it's just, it's good. And that's the one thing I do like about this time of year. We go through the holidays and things can be tough for people for a lot of reasons, but then we come out of it, we enter this type of phase in, in our lives where universally everyone it feels just more comfortable talking about their hopes and dreams and their wishes and physical well-being, mental well-being, emotional, spiritually, whatever you want to talk about. And it's just, I think it's a good thing that people talk about that. And so, yes, I believe in goals. I believe in trying to do a better job each year. We have, you know, personal improvements, life improvements, professional, but I hope everyone has a, a safe and healthy 2024 and a good year. I did have one piece of feedback from email that was submitted from a person by the name of Jill asking, and this was just a really interesting piece of feedback, wanted us to debate more. Mm-hmm. Wanted us to have more engagements, more sparring. Okay. And so it's something to think about. And let me just say, you and I have worked together in the past where I have found that we, and I was a little taken aback, not taken aback by that, but I think we have good discussion and debate. I think the way we've set this show up is that we want to bring guests in and have it be collaborative and have good discussions, which is interesting. But I think my first thought was, you know, football, food takes, things like that. I'm not trying to, I don't think we need to set ourselves up to fight, but I would, I think it would be good in this year as we continue this podcast to bring in a little bit more, con- have to be more responsible debate and discourse, not necessarily between you and I, because that would be a fair fight. We'll let our listeners think as to what that means about the fair fight, but yeah. I just, yeah, I was surprised because I do think there's a lot of healthy debate. I think that, and I'll turn it over to you, but it's it's something to think about. I like it. Um, I, you know, I think we could probably push ourselves to at times um, when there is some disagreement, maybe ask again, not in a unfriendly or, you know, dramatic fashion, but maybe, maybe we just push a little bit more. Maybe if there is something that we disagree with, either with our, each other or a guest, we probe a little bit more in asking why that might be and and see if uh what comes from there but um interesting i'm i'm always happy to get permission to uh debate a little bit more so that's fun it's interesting and some people will read uh, not a fair fight as a me giving a shot at you i want to point something out to you you would be surprised at how much the podcast is heard amongst my family not immediate family not my my wife and kids, but also secondary uh, in-laws, the sisters and others. And how many people agree with you? 
and I oh, hear I about it quite a bit. And I don't want to start 2024 off by being too dramatic or, or <laughs> setting this up as it's me and it's it's Becky and my family against me. But there's a lot of a lot of feedback I get a lot about your comments and how uh, people. Uh, I think the silent majority in my family is that uh, they like they listen more for you than me. Oh, that's it. very whatever gets kind. the downloads. Whatever gets the downloads. I will take it. Thanks, Broadcorp family. Um, I'm here for it. Whatever gets the download. So <laughs> I thought that was interesting. We'll try to do more uh, maybe with some of our guests. And just one last to that big debate component. One of the things that Becky and I have tried to do, I think a little different, is we've had a real kind of slow burn with the podcast. I mean, it started off, and we've had a couple episodes that I think have really brought some tension in. We're trying to have discussions with people, and debates can sometimes drown that out. But I just think it would be good. I think it was an interesting observation if we can find a way to balance it a bit more and talk about that kind of production on air, I think is invites the listeners in. So if you can think about some subjects that have some, we can have some debate about that you would be encouraged to hear. And it's not a drown out screaming match. I think fair to say, Becky, I mean, one of the things that we try to do is even when we disagree, which I think has been, there's been substantive debates where we've disagreed. We give each other a chance to talk. Absolutely. I mean, and I think even even when it comes to our guests, I, I, I think the David Han, um, Ken Martin episode is a prime example of where we Perfect. had a debate. You could definitely tell there were times where there was a little bit of tension, but it was still done in a very respectful manner. They still shook hands. They still were excited to see each other again at upcoming events. And um, I think that's the goal. I think that I love the opportunity here with this podcast that we are able to give listeners some insight to conversations that they would not already have. You know, I feel like so much in politics, we listen to our echo chamber, right? We listen to the right, we listen to the left. And I like the opportunity here that even if you don't agree with one aota of what our guest is talking about, it's a conversation that you would not have heard otherwise, or or just would not have put yourself in the in a situation to be part of. And that's what I love. And so again, we're going to continue, I think, to have some great guests and and I'm excited to continue those conversations. One last point I'll make about the podcast and particularly when it came to discussions with family. Um, Again, immediate family, secondary, you know, kind of know what I mean. Uh, Just people, uh, different kind of levels of family. It is surprising to me how much people listen. And it's interesting because we put so much work in producing this and getting it done and getting it out there. But to get that feedback and to know that people just sit down and listen, it's just a great feeling. And it feels good to know that people are listening. And to get the feedback, in all honesty, let's be clear, my whether it's my immediate family, in-laws, sisters, and other families, they're tired of hearing me. <laughs> I've been around for a long time. They're tired of hearing me. It's no surprise that they're lining up and listening to someone else. But it's great that when they, it's great that they are very much, I think, invested in hearing your opinion, in your take, and discussing it in in good advocacy points where they're listening. And so, uh, kudos to you uh, for uh, breaking through and and giving uh, my family someone finally that they can listen to. So they don't <laughs> just have to tune in to me because uh, it's clear uh, they're not tuning in for me. Well, right back at you. And I got to say, you know, at at our wedding just a, a couple weeks ago, about a month ago now, um, you know, I knew a couple aunts had were regular listeners. 
but I had a couple cousins, um, a couple uncles from my stepdad's side. Um, I was amazed by the amount of people that came up and say, you know, we listen, we like to tune in every week. We're, we're checking it out. So um, it's just a fun way also to keep in touch. So shout out family. I think it's great where we appreciate the support. And um, if you got any feedback, text us, write us, let us um, know. Looking forward then. Um, I have great hopes and and. Becky and I have uh, talked a lot about the podcast over the last couple of weeks. We've agreed to do this as long as it continues to stay fun. I think it's going to continue to stay fun, and we're looking forward to We have a lot of great guests in, in 2024. Don't want to tease or drop names. We don't ever want to kind of get into the production stuff on air um, and tease, but we're going to have some big shows uh, coming up, and we've put a lot of work into lining up some guests and some topics, and I think it's going to be a real fun year, and particularly with the feedback we received uh, from Jill, uh, thanks for the email. Um, the feedback we received, I think we're going to, 2024 is going to be a really good year for us. Uh, and also hopefully both personally and professionally. Absolutely. You know, and with so much going on, I mean, like we just kind of mentioned, we have all of the presidential uh, race going on. We have a lot of stuff at stake here in the in state elections. There's going to be another session here coming up in February where there's going to be a lot of stuff trying to be pushed through that didn't get through last cycle. It's going to be a busy, busy year. We have some good congressional uh, candidates that are are going to be so good. Congressional races here in Minnesota are always top targets. So there's going to be a lot to go on. There's going to be a lot of new guests, um, and I hope a lot of intriguing conversations. I'm very, I'm very hopeful and optimistic about what we've got planned for for the upcoming year. We want to thank you again for listening. Uh, want a little bit of a call to action at the end. Uh, encourage you to just follow us wherever you are on all your social media platforms. We're going to be doing a lot more engagement this year, a lot more of just audience participation, listener participation, polls, guest discussions. We're going to try to bring in more of some video shows, maybe some more live streams and other types of stuff to really build a, a community of audience. But I just wanted to end this segment by just saying thank you uh, both to Becky. Um, also, I want to acknowledge you know her family. Uh, this takes uh, this is a sacrifice. Um, Obviously, she'll do a podcast with me, but it takes time away from her family, uh, which is not an insignificant uh, contribution. And I just wanted to note that and just say thank you to you and your family uh, on air um, for all that you and guys- And you and yours. And for just your contribution and stuff. And, and I hope that as we go through 2024, if there's a need for a puke bucket, it'll be <laughs> done with dignity, respect, and the privacy that you deserve, as I just discussed it on air. I love it. Uh, well, that's why we have a mute button if we need to. Uh, but thank you. And again, I'm so grateful for all your back end work, the tech work, uh, stuff to put gathering guests and social media. I mean, you're just crushing it, killing it. We wouldn't have a podcast without you. So thank you so much for all your time and dedication. It's going to be a great year. Can't wait. Thanks, Peggy. I want to welcome Sarah Gad to joining us today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So we want to start by just kind of getting to know you a little bit. Um, we were reading some articles, your bio, and um, one article highlighted your journey, defendant to defender. Um, I think it's interesting thing about you that I think a lot of Americans, Minnesotans can um, have some sort of personal experience with is um, the opio opioid crisis. So you were in a car accident in 2012. Can you walk us through a little bit of your journey and how that kind of led you to be the the person you are today? Um, yeah. So up until my car accident, you know, I was in medical school 
never been in trouble with the law before, never really thought about, you know, the prison or incarcerated populations, never thought about, you know, the criminalization of addiction until I was actually being criminalized for my addiction. And I was a nonviolent drug offender uh, in all of my cases. I had cases in Minneapolis and Pittsburgh where I attended medical school. And I just so vividly recall my experience finding out that I had been charged with a crime and then the aftermath. So this police officer, his name was Rufus Jones, shows up to my house in Pittsburgh and was like, oh, you know, Sarah, I just want to, I want to ask you some questions because I have a daughter your age and I want to help you. But in order to help you, I need you to be honest with me, Sarah. Tell me the truth. How many prescriptions did you forge? Because I know I just need to hear it from you. And I was like, mm, okay, this guy's on my side. Great. <laughs> I'll tell you all the prescriptions that I forged. And I did. And then it came back to bite me really, really hard. And that's when I realized that law enforcement officers are not necessarily always there to protect and serve. Um, it, it, it was horrifying. And then, you know, the next three years of my life, I spent going in and out of jail, rehab centers, was even on the street at times. And I can say with absolute certainty that being homeless in Minnesota during the winter is a chilling experience on every level. So we talk about, okay, I'm not going to get on this tangent about policy, but uh, yeah. And then, like I said, my life just became a revolving door and out of jail and rehab centers in the street. And I couldn't find a job. I couldn't find a place to live. And when you go from being a high functioning medical student with a full scholarship, you know, at a top university to being a convicted felon who can't get a job, couldn't even like drive for Uber. Um, it just was a really hopeless, powerless feeling. And it always drove me back to using, I would get out of jail, try to make a good faith effort to get my life on track. Cause I did not want to go back to jail, but you know, you can only take so much as a human. And there was so much that I felt like I needed to numb. And so on July 9th of 2015, I walked out of jail for the last time and uh, relapsed and overdosed. And that ended up saving my life because in the hospital, I was introduced to a medication called Suboxone and it really did work. Um, but I could never shake like the feeling and the horrors of what I saw when I was in the criminal justice system. I've always had kind of, a, if you can't beat them, join them and then try to lead by example mentality. And so uh, fought hard to get into law school and turn my life around. And yeah, now I'm here with my own practice in Minnesota and I love it. It's it's incredible. And I think it's really great that you're willing to share your story um, of being in a low place and and to where you've come. And, uh, you know, it was it was I was loving reading about your your bio because you not only went to law school and graduated from law school, but you did also, um, I read, earned a prestigious University of Chicago Humanitarian Award for your pro bono legal work um, on opioid crisis uh, advocacy. And then you've gone, gone on to also create a nonprofit here in Minnesota, I believe, aimed again at increasing access and treatment to those in jail and prison. So if you could sp speak a little bit to those kind of things and how, how you really built this out to be now your life. Uh, yeah, so... <laughs> You know, 
I always like to say 100% of people who are in jail and prison are human. And uh, when I was in jail, I got to know some really wonderful women. And just over the years, they started dropping dead like flies from opioid overdoses. And in my head, I was like, there, there are treatments for this. Like there are FDA approved medications to prevent this. So why isn't it, why aren't they preventing it? Um, and so when I was in my second year of law school at the university of Chicago, um, one of my former cellmates died of an opioid overdose and I started, or I, uh, I joined this group called Pittsburgh won't forget you. And just all these familiar names kept popping up and I just couldn't break away from the thought that these were human beings. Like these were women that I, I lived with like in a confined space. I heard them laugh. I heard them cry. I saw their families, their kids. And one of my, uh, former acquaintances, Marley died on my birthday in, uh, 2017. And her mom posted this something on Facebook that said, please make it stop. And it just so happened that the Clinton Global Initiative, which is this Clinton Foundation sponsored event for students who have life-changing ideas, it just happened to be hosted on my on our campus that year. And so I, uh, I submitted a proposal uh, to expand access to medication-assisted treatment to stop people from dying from opioid overdoses. And uh, while I was at the Clinton Global Initiative, I they, they put us in a room. It was strictly for students who had ideas tied to the opioid crisis. And um, I shared my idea and they welcomed it with open arms and the Clinton Health Access Initiative worked with me to kind of help spread the word. And yeah, just the data is so compelling. Like if you just make medication assisted treatment available in, to incarcerated populations, it brings down the overdose fatality rate by like 90%. <laughs> so I just couldn't wrap my mind around why it's not available, but um, yeah, I'm fighting to make it available. And there's been some shifts in the federal laws that have loosened restrictions on the ability to access treatment for opioid use disorder. So I'm hoping that those two things kind of bring about the end to this crisis. Because when I went public with my story in 2018, it had just been declared the number one cause of accidental death of like 49,000 deaths. Now we're up to close to 110,000 deaths per year. Um. I am so impressed by your story and background. I just want to share a personal story, which is kind of why I'm getting choked up. Oh, thank you. 2013, I was in a car crash. I drove drunk, pleaded guilty to drinking and driving. And I've been volunteering for the last 10 years with Minnesotans for Safe Driving and a number of organizations to talk about addiction problems. And I'm so impressed by your background, the work that you've done, your advocacy, the things that you do, and how you've dedicated yourself to the cause. Um, I'm a big believer in second and third and fourth chances. I love comeback stories. I love redemption stories. One of the things that we try to do in this podcast that's so important is, you know, Becky and I are both Republicans. You're a Democrat. We should, in this kind of context, be screaming and yelling and having these disagreements and there's fight. I just have to say, 
It's why I wanted Becky to take the lead in this interview because I knew I was going to hear things that were going to resonate with me. And I wanted just to listen and not interrupt because I wanted the guest to hear it. But I just want to say at the onset how you were down and out. You were in a tough position and you fought back and look at where you are today. And there are so many people out there, particularly I've spoken at treatment facilities. I've spoken to jails. I've spoken to prisons. There are so many people out there, average everyday Minnesotans who run into these types of situations and the guilt, the shame that they feel consumes them. And people can sometimes be in the prison of their mind. And they're in the prison of their mind in the sense that they can never let go. They can never move past the sentence or move past what they did. And so if I could do a podcast about one subject for the rest of my life, it would be people exactly like you. People who have been through difficult circumstances have come back and are just kicking ass in so (laughs) many ways. And I just wanted to say, God bless you for what you've done and how you've lived your life. And we may disagree about partisan issues. But the world needs more people like you, and the world also needs to hear that there's chances and that people can get second and third chances. I'm a product of second, third, and fourth chances. I'm, I just turned 50. I may need a couple more chances to get through life. But I just wanted to explain a little bit of my emotion and partisan blinders aside, because you're a Democrat, we're a Republican, <laughs> we're going to disagree about a lot. But boy, oh boy, I just wanted to say in prepping for this interview and in reading about you, and what your work did, and then hearing you discuss it, I just wanted to say, just great damn job. Much that means a lot to me, and kind of like what what you just spoke about, how people live in this prison, like in their mind of just guilt and shame. It doesn't help that our criminal justice system won't let you forget it. Like the collateral consequences that accompany a criminal conviction are ruthless. Like they don't care how down and out you are if you. Don't, if you're court ordered to get a job and you don't get a job because you're a felon, it's like you go back to jail. And so people, including myself, like they just get caught in this cycle. And, you know, I fortunately managed to break the cycle for myself. And I am fortunate to have my opioid addiction stopped before fentanyl came into the picture. And so I feel very fortunate too, but I also feel the survivor's guilt in a way because there are so so many people who are deserving of second chances who just don't get them. And so that's largely part of the reason why I decided to run for office um, is just to create this awareness that we're not helping in any way, shape or form, you know, with public safety and reducing crime rates by just mass criminalization of people. And they're frankly are just, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Uh, One of the things I talk about a lot in in my speeches, and and Becky, this is probably the first time I've ever discussed this in depth on the podcast before, but I just want to affirm to our listeners how important it is what you're saying. There's just a hopelessness that people have sometimes when they make mistakes. If I just could ask just one kind of personal question, and we'll get more into the, the politics of your campaign, but who you are as a candidate is largely shaped by who you are as a person. What kept you going? One of the things that I try to do when I'm giving my speeches at wherever I'm at is I'm, I'm meeting a lot of people that are in just a bad spot. Because I was really in a bad spot when I went to my victim impact panel for the first time. I was walking with a cane. I knew people when I was going into the community center in my city. What's your message to people who have gone through this experience 
you in a much more serious way than I did, that to keep them going, because there's a message of hope. I want to just send to people out there that it's going to get better. And it's and we, we have to be able to move past this stuff and forgive ourselves in some instances. What what keeps me going? Yeah. And, and how did you get through it? How did you keep getting up every day? Um, it was very hard. <laughs> it is. It is very hard to get up. Uh, and, um, you know, I just like I said, I'll never forget just the fact that these are human beings. Yep. And, you know, there's so much injustice. And, you know, I come with a certain privilege. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have parents who really emphasized education. And, you know, I also recognize that it just, I have a lot of things that many people in the system don't have. And I just, I'll never shake what I saw. Like, it, it just, it's the injustice that drives me. Like, injustice, if it doesn't sleep, I feel like neither can I. Um, and, you know, I have this platform that has enabled me to speak very candidly on these issues and remind people, you know, of my mission and the fact that we are all human beings and we deserve to live with dignity. Uh, so I guess until that happens, I just don't feel like there's a, I can give up on that fight. World needs more people like you. Well, thank the world you. needs more people like you. And so thank you. Well, thank you. It's really refreshing to hear, you know, people be so candid about their past and not be so ashamed of the stigma, you know, that accompanies criminalization. And I think, I mean, I, I guess you could say I'm proud of you too. Thank you. <laughs> you. Well, thank you both. And I think it's really, um, like I said, incredible that you both, I know it's not always easy and, and we'll call and come back to it a little bit, um, how it's coming on the campaign trail. But um, I do want to get into kind of more of our talk here about the race for the 5th Congressional District. So you spoke a little bit about this being a, a reasoning why you decided to run for office. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? I know you you ran for office in Illinois once previously, came back, you're made native Minnesotan here, um, but why running in the 5th and having a voice, having your voice as our Congresswoman in the 5th Congressional District, um, why you decided to run and why you think that Congresswoman Omar should be defeated? Well, um, so... I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned I'm a native Minnesotan because a lot of people think that I'm from Chicago and they're like, what is she like this carpet big? Boy, there's something, there's something <laughs> about Minnesotans that act that way. I mean, you, you get, I mean, it's my wife's from Iowa. We're okay. very provincial. We're very like, you gotta be in Minnesota to be in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, you know, I, since I've moved back to Minnesota, it was right after George Floyd happened and, I I was just so fed up with just the sheer injustice and hypocrisy of everything. And I've written, I, I used to support Congresswoman Omar. Like I'm pretty sure I donated to her campaign when she was running for her second term, but I've written to her so many times over the years to just as like as a constituent, uh, asking for help, trying to get medication assisted treatment into Minnesota jails and prisons. I've reached out to her, you know, for so many different things over the years that I thought that she would welcome like help 
from somebody who is as driven and passionate as I am about, you know, bringing about reform. I thought she would welcome that, but she didn't. She never responded to a single one of my inquiries. Well, she did. The day I launched my campaign, she invited me to lunch, but like, no, we deserve a voice, a real voice who actually is accessible and responsive to our needs. Because, I mean, what like what are you what are you doing in Congress if if you don't want to actually be a voice for your constituents? You can't even respond to emails and letters about things that you constantly preach about on the campaign trail. And I just wanted to say, the fact that I am Muslim and she's Muslim, it's just coincidence. Like a lot of people are like, how how could you try to go after another Muslim woman in Congress? I'm like, I'm not going after. Her. I am just stepping up for my district because the conditions here are horrible. I mean, it's just year after year, you you hear the same false promises, but year after year, you know, people in Minneapolis continue to experience soaring crime rates, you know, state-sanctioned violence, the absence of any meaningful progress and reform with all of the federal funding that we get. Okay, I'm going too much into the weeds now about this, but suffice it to say, um, I, I'm running because I want to give our district a voice. And I think it's really important that we have somebody who understands what, like, what it is like to... I, I, okay, I'm going to stop there. No, <laughs> no We're a podcast. The advantage of a podcast as long as it works in your schedule, we love going into the weeds. Well, I, I, again, I just don't want it to seem like I have a personal grind to like a personal axe to grind with her. I don't know her. I wish I could say I did know her, you know, because I've been her constituent going on four years. Um, I did. I did see her in person once. Uh, I think it was at the Minnesota Nursing Association rally and she was a speaker and she was really just angry that they put her first instead of last. And she was like actually screaming at like people who put the event together. And I was like, wow, okay. Um, I don't actually, um, <laughs> I, I don't know what this is, but I don't feel represented. And this is not kind of like the leadership that I want to be under. And I wasn't really thinking about running for Congress back then. Um, why I decided to run for Congress again was because, you know, I, I get into a lot of arguments with judges about the fact, like, I'm like, I get that you cannot legislate from the bench, but the alternative is the arbitrary deprivation of liberty in America, the land of the free. Like, how can you not like just be inclined to do something? And they're like, yeah, well, we can't legislate from the bench, Ms. Gad, you make a fair point, but we just enforce the laws. So after hearing that so many times, I believe it was July 6, I was just like, screw it. I'm entering my statement of I'm entering my name into the fifth congressional district race. And I will figure it out later. Like I, I just wasn't fully committed to the idea yet. But then the I think 10 days later, I get this email from a reporter in Minnesota who has um very closely aligned with Ilhan Omar over the years asking, uh, we're doing a story on the fact that Ilhan's first challenger is a criminal who can't follow the law. So do you have any comment on why you should be making them? 
And I didn't have a comment, but it was just fortuitous that the next day I won a very high profile murder case uh, and proved that this young man who had been in prison for seven months in the Hennepin County Jail, extradited from Virginia where he was attending school, locked up on $2 million bail without a shred of evidence against him. Uh, so yeah, when the judge was explaining to my client, you know, Mr. Richardson, you need to be very thankful for the work of Miss Gad. You know, I remember her from her days as a defendant in the, you know, in these courtrooms and just, he was, just made some impassioned speech at the end. And there are media people in the ready in the courtroom following another murder plea. But because mine was just like a quick dismissal, they put it on the record first. And when they heard this, they just chased me out of the courtroom. <laughs> And we're like, no, sit. We need to hear more, more about this. Um, and Fox Nine News ended up doing just a a segment on primetime about my life that went viral on Reddit, which caught the attention of the Washington Post. And I had specifically asked the Washington Post not to mention that I was considering running for Congress because the focus of the article, like, I wanted it to be just about criminal justice reform and, you know, drug policy reform without injecting trigger words and trigger names into the conversation. So they initially honored that request, but um, evidently some someone got on their back about not mentioning that I had ran in Illinois and was now running against Ilhan Omar. So they went back and updated the article to include that. And then every local outlet picked it up. But it was like, breaking news, attorney Sarah Gad is officially in the running. I didn't even have a website at that time. Hmm. <laughs> like, we just quickly got up a website with a donate button. And yeah, I've just, I guess it was almost kind of accidental that I ended up in this race. But once I felt like the warm public reception of my candidacy um, and agonizing media stories about me, it was really reassuring and just kind of reaffirmed that I made the right decision by doubling down and continuing to fight for the fifth district. One thing I do want to hit on that you kind of said as a catalyst of you jumping in the race is, is access and accessibility and responsiveness from Congress or, or lack thereof here from Congresswoman Omar. Um, I spent three years working in Washington, D.C. for Congressman Tom Emmer. And that was something that I know from his office, he very much prided himself. If you were a constituent and you wrote in, you got a response, whether that was, you know, sometimes it could only be a form response, I'm sure. Uh, every constituent that wrote in for something got some acknowledgement of thank you for writing, you know, even if it was a thank you for writing into my office, I will keep that in consideration. Any response, um, obviously, you know, he prided himself on, on going more in depth and having more conversations and communications and meetings and, and you know, getting to know folks. But I think it's really important because I think, especially with someone like Congresswoman Omar, so many people just focus on what she is saying on the news, on Twitter, all of those kind of things, and thinking that it's always these you know, big, scandalous, sexy reasons why people want to get in and, and run against somebody that's like a name like Congresswoman Omar, when really at the basis, it comes down to actually doing her job for the constituents of the 5th Congressional District. And that is something that you're not the first person we've heard from that has a big frustration with that and her completely neglecting the district that she is meant to serve, which is here in Minnesota's 5th Congressional District. So I think that's great that you do recognize that 
that you realized you were reaching out, wanting to be helpful and supportive, and even you weren't getting a response, think of other people that are having actual issues or frustrations too that that still just do not get anything, um, any acknowledgement. So that's a always a great reason for, for stepping up. But I do want to touch real quick on that because that was a question I had um, was – if you are hearing people use your past against you on the campaign trail, is that something your opponents are doing? Are you seeing this from more or have people now that you've made it clear that this is how you got to be the person you are and why you have something to offer for the constituents and for Americans? Um, are people kind of past it? Uh, not in Hennepin County. The prosecutors are not past it. Um, they... Uh, yeah, they seem very angry at the fact that I actually did show up three years after I said I was going to law school. I started law school with an ankle monitor, by the way, because Hennepin County would not let me live down the fact that I was a nonviolent drug offender. Uh, super embarrassing at U Chicago, the most conservative law school in the country. <laughs> like the third most prestigious and most conservative law school. And my classmates were just like fascinated by the fact that I have this beeping ankle monitor in they're just like, what is happening? Because I don't know if you heard, um, or I don't know if you know this, but I, I worked for this very famous attorney named Kathleen Zollner, and I was in season two of Making a Murderer, that Netflix on that Netflix Ooh. documentary on Stephen Avery. I was the, actually, I still have the placard. I was the science director. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so my classmates were like watching this documentary because I believe season two came out when shortly after I matriculated and they're like, how is she, like, how is she on Netflix on a famous documentary or fa like she's in a famous, very famous documentary, but is also sitting here with an ankle monitor. Like what is going on? But, um, yeah, I, I, through that experience, I just kind of learned to let go of the shame. <laughs> are you, are you kind of, are people using this as trying to disqualify you? They, I mean, they've certainly tried, but they don't really get anywhere. I think a yeah. lot of people, um, well, I do get a lot of positive feedback about my candor and honesty about my past. And a lot of people can relate. I mean, I I'm hear glad. when I went door knocking, somebody running for Congress, but helping my friend who's running for city council. And every, this was in the, the East Isles area, huge houses, you know, just, but people wanted to just be heard. So we'd knock on the door and I'd be like, just want to know, is there anything, any issues of particular relevance to you that's going to be driving you to the voting booth? And they're like, I had a benzodiazepine addiction or, you know, it, it, just people that you wouldn't actually, you, you would never look at them and think, you never look at their houses and think like, wow, <laughs> they're really going through it too. And I, I mean, I always say addiction is, education is the most powerful equalizer. Addiction is the second most powerful equalizer. I want to share just one political story that I think has relevancy in this subject. Congressman Jim Ramstead, who passed away a number of years ago. Jim Ramstead was elected to the Minnesota State Senate in 1980. And a few months after he was elected to the State Senate, um, he woke up in a jail cell uh, in South Dakota. Uh, Jim Ramstead was an alcoholic. 
And he woke up in a jail cell. And when he woke up in the jail cell, he thought that there was blood in him. He thought he had maybe hurt someone or killed someone. And, and that was the start of Jim Ramstead's career in public life, but also his career towards sobriety. Uh, that happened in, I think he was arrested in 81. Nine, uh, nine years later, Jim Ramstead's elected to Congress from Minnesota's 3rd Congressional District. And eight years later, in Jim, 1998, more Republicans or more voters in the 3rd Congressional District voted for Jim Ramstead than any other member of Congress in the country. And the point I'm saying to you is people like authentic candidates. People identify with authentic candidates. Jim Ramstead is someone who embraced all of the vices in his life that he was dealing with and used them as a strength in what he advocated for. And my goodness, um, if there's something that I know is that people like authentic candidates. This is a state that at one point elected Paul Wellstone and Rod Graham to the United States Senate at the same time. Polar opposites uh, on the ideological spectrum, but very authentic. And so authentic candidates resonate. And so keep being authentic. I do get emails from people like, oh, you might find allies in Chris Christie's corner with, you know, your mission to end addiction. And so I think that, you know, a lot of people are just kind of getting over partisan politics. Yes. Because, you know, to truth be told, I, I'm running as a Democrat because like my core beliefs are consistent with what the Democratic Party ideally should be, but it's not. Um, and I feel like the Democratic Party tries to convince us that the Republican Party is the biggest enemy when an reality, it's the special interest groups and lobbies that are funding politicians on both sides to actively suppress the demands of the American people. And I mean, I have, I have a lot of supporters who are also Republican because largely because, you know, they've had similar experience that have resonated with, you know, my experience resonated with them because there are so many similarities and I'm just really glad that uh, that people recognize that it's not only okay to disagree, but that we are all human at the end of the day. And Congress, you know, it should be the place where positive societal contributions are made in the form of laws that evolve with evolving standards of basic human decency. But Congress is so polarized that our elected representatives, they don't just fail to get anything done. They fail to even try. And then they come around every re-election season begging us for money so they can fund their re-election campaigns. When most of them are household names who should just be able to point to their track records of what they've done in Congress. But instead, they just beg us for money, make more false promises, and like so they can pretend like they're working for the American people and not these lobbies and special interest groups and their own egos. I think you kind of identified a little bit of of the reasoning why Michael and I even chose to to do this podcast in the void. We kind of saw out there, you know, like he mentioned, we identify as Republicans, but similar to you, we I think identify with what we the Republican Party used to be or or should be, not necessarily where it exactly stands right now. Um, I always give Michael a hard time. He he endorsed Governor Walls this last cycle even because he did not stand. You know, the, and I got to get my jab in, Michael. Another um, year. This is the, <laughs> we brought, we started the podcast in two thousand and twenty two. She brought it up then. 
She brought it up in 2023. And now this is the first episode of 2024. So this is a three-year joke. I, I cons- Nothing but consistent. But I think exactly what you mentioned is we have the same frustrations and why we want to have these conversations with left, right, and middle uh, guests on here is to have conversations and to show that we can move beyond those differences. We can chat about policy. We can chat about backgrounds and the betterment of Minnesotans, making things better for Minnesota families, for our businesses, um, for for everybody in our state and around the country. And and so I appreciate you uh, and your your similar like-mindedness on that and and willing to have those conversations because divisive politics obviously is what, you know, drives the clicks and what gets people to the polls. And um, I'm hopeful and optimistic that at some point we do kind of go back to the old way and and praising some bipartisanship, not finding it a a way of a weakness for a candidate or for an elected official. So um, along those lines, though, I know you wanted to, you kept pulling yourself back from going into the weeds before. I kind of want to take a couple minutes and go into the weeds of some of those issues in the 5th Congressional District that you are hearing about um, from folks and and things that you either maybe agree with Congresswoman Omar or disagree with her on, but things that you're kind of using as a platform for your campaign. Well, my my top three issues are based on conversations that I've had with residents in the 5th District. And my platform is constantly evolving as I hear, you know, more about what voters want and what they need. And so my I'm really focused on, number one, crime and public safety. And a lot of people think that reducing crime and criminal justice reform are mutually exclusive concepts, but they're not. Uh, One of the biggest, you know, contributors to crime is economic instability. And suffice it to say, if if we want to end gun violence, we're not going to do it by taking away people's guns. We have to give people, you know, an opportunity to or a purpose to not have to pick up the gun in the first place and when you cut off like every channel towards a lawful you know people think that i'm soft on crime um because i don't think that we should criminalize people for a lot of things that we do but i i'm really not soft on crime if we really want to reduce crime and improve public safety, we have to work as a community to address the reasons why crime is happening at such alarming rates. And so on, on January 6th, for instance, my campaign is hosting an expungement clinic to offer second chances to people who made mistakes in their past and are still being held back by it. And we were doing it by appointment only, and the slots filled up within a day that we announced because everybody is so, everybody who's been criminalized, who doesn't have a path towards economic stability or a way to feed their family, is hungry for an opportunity to do that. And, you know, people want to experience the glory of what second chances can do because I'm a living example of the power of second chances and rehabilitation. And that's, I think that if we stop focusing so much on 
retroactive punishment, start being more proactive about it, we're not only going to reduce crime and hopefully restore America back to being the land of the free, but we're going to end a lot of co-occurring crises that have occurred in tandem with, you know, our system of laws, the way that they are. So that's number one is crime and public safety. And that's from listening to, you know, the concerns of a lot of the voters in the fifth district. Um, um, real quick before you move on, um, I just wanted to ask, so if you were to be elected, are there, do you have a specific law or two, you know, you mentioned there are certain things that are currently criminalized that you would would not like to be criminalized. Is is there a law or two that you would target in that, that to reduce that penalty? The war on drugs. It's the war on drugs. It was never a war on drugs. And look what it's done. And we're still fighting this war. When Nixon's own chief of staff said in 1992 that Nixon had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be black or against the war. So by getting the public to associate the blacks with heroin and the hippies with marijuana and criminalizing both heavily, we could go into their communities and raid their homes and arrest their leaders and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So that quote has been out there since 1992. We are now inching on 2024. And this is a verified quote. <laughs> And I have to believe that if you are in Congress, you are aware of the racial underpinnings of the war on drugs. And it's even if we're not concerned about the racial motivations, look at what the war on drugs has done. America is now the mass incarceration capital of the world, home to 30% of the world's incarcerated population, but only 5% of its actual population. If we have more people in prison cells, and jail cells today for just drug offenses. We have more people locked up for just drug offenses today than there were for any offense in 1980. And the amount of money that we spend to sustain this practice of hyper-criminalization, it, it's, it's, it's just not sustainable. We literally spend more money keeping people in cages than we do putting their kids in classrooms. And so yeah, the war on drugs is definitely something that I'm going to be advocating to exit from because it's truly the biggest policy failure of all time. I mean, America can't be the land of the free and the mass incarceration capital of the world. And this opioid crisis that has, you know, been growing in tandem with, you know, um, mass incarceration, it's, it's not it's not a coincidence. People are walking out of jail relapsing and they don't have the tolerance for opioids that they did before they went in. And so now with fentanyl in the picture, it's a recipe for death. It, it's truly a recipe for death. That's what I did my legal thesis on at the University of Chicago um, was how the criminalization of addiction is killing people at alarming rates. And for the reasons I just described, when you have an opioid naive person who injects what they think is heroin, but turns out to be cut with fentanyl, you're going to die. And that's why people who have just been released from jail and prison are 129 times more likely to die from an overdose within the first two weeks of being released than the general population for any reason whatsoever. So uh, to your question, other laws that I am going to be hopefully targeting are federal laws that restrict access to opioid addiction treatment. I mean, France ended its heroin epidemic in just four years. 
by making a medication called Suboxone accessible through primary care doctors. And, you know, we've had Suboxone for decades. So why isn't it actually being used the way that it should to prevent these deaths? And it's because there are so many federal restrictions surrounding it that doctors don't want to prescribe it because they don't want to go through the added training. They have to like take eight hours worth of classes and pay exorbitant fees and then subject their practices to random DEA audits. And yeah, these are laws that I'm going to be targeting. I think that seems to make sense, aligns with uh, your work up to date. And I think a, a good response to my question. I appreciate it. And I just want to clarify, it is not a wildly progressive idea to want to repeal a law that has been dubbed the biggest policy failure of all time. It is not wildly progressive to just want to end suffering and save lives. And the criminalization of addiction is it's just horrific. I feel like we're going to look back, you know, history classes, they're going to teach about how America criminalized groups of people for having diseases and then let them walk out of jail and prison and die. I mean, that's reckless indifference to human life, which is cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment. One of the issues when it comes to decriminalization that I always try to balance, uh, and I'd like to get your perspective on is, you know, Minnesota just legalized marijuana in this state. One of the issues that always comes down to, my concern is always with uh, traffic safety and, and, and impaired driving. And, and so how do you balance, if, if you could, in, in your experience, expanded legalization and then also making sure that law enforcement has the tools or EMS have, have the tools to deal with reckless and distracted and dangerous, dangerous driving? Well, marijuana uh, or cannabis is 144 times safer to consume than alcohol. And most people who, I mean, in my experience, I've have clients who've been criminalized for, you know, marijuana or related crimes and they they tend to want to just stay home, like on their couch and watch Netflix and eat a bunch of like crap. <laughs> they don't necessarily want to go out and, and drive the way that um, uh, there are the way that a lot of drunk drivers do. And, you know, I, I think just as a general matter, it's a lot safer to consume than alcohol. And I'm not really sure why they're needs to be in law enforcement policing the consumption of, of weed. But yet, I mean, certainly, I guess if, if people are out there driving while intoxicated, then, it, you know, and they hurt someone, like, of course, that should be dealt with. But um, it's just, my, I guess my argument would be it's a lot safer than alcohol. Um, fair point. Um, we spoke a little bit about... Um, uh, you know, so so we previously had Don Samuels on, who is running in the 5th Congressional District as well. We spoke with him about uh, debates or lack thereof the last time around when he ran against uh, Congresswoman Omar. And uh, we were before the show, we're kind of chatting with you. Um, you mentioned there is a candidate forum coming up, correct? Yes, on January 20th. But a strict five minutes, no rebuttals or interaction between the candidates, right? Uh, I mean... I would hope that everyone would avail themselves to questions <laughs> at the end, but I'm not really um, sure like what else the structure is. I've just been told you have five minutes to speak. 
But Got it's it. not a it's not a debate in the sense that just candidates get to speak. And so would you do you have interest in, in debating Congresswoman Omar and your fellow opponents um, leading up to the primary? Yes, absolutely. I would welcome that opportunity. Awesome. Well, I think, you know, we did extend an offer to Congresswoman Omar and Don Samuels to debate. Uh, Michael, I think as we're in agreement that Miss um, Gad, we would love to invite you to do that as well. If 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 we can make it happen, I think it would be a, certainly an interesting conversation and one that I think the voters of the uh, 5th Congressional District, you know, deserve to hear similarities and differences and, and, you know, just a little bit more. I think, you know, we would like to have a platform that folks can educate others on, on issues on themselves. And uh, we certainly think that the, the voters leading into a primary election with a busy slate of candidates certainly deserve to hear from those candidates. Yeah, I absolutely agree. One other topic we just, we discussed before I want to ask you, um, the presidential race, I think Becky and I, um, Fair to say, I don't speak for her, but Becky, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, neither of us have been uh, big Trump supporters. Um, and coming into this presidential election cycle, I think there's a lot of interest in there being different candidates uh, amongst the two major parties. Right now, I think it's trending towards uh, Trump and Biden. Do you have a particular take or are you getting are you waiting into the presidential race at all? Are you, are you supporting President Biden or are you hoping for another candidate? Where, where are you in the race? I am not satisfied with Biden's like I just it yeah I I tend to vote Democrat um but I'm really really hoping that somebody else steps up and joins the race because it's it's hard to support you know a president who is responsible for a lot of what I have described. I mean, he spearheaded a lot of this whole tough on crime and, uh, and just by parting federal marijuana offenses, like you think that that's sufficient to undo the damage that you've inflicted on (laughs) communities across the country. Like, no, (laughs) that's not, that's not sufficient. Um, Either like I'm hoping that he bolsters his platform and actually takes action. I, I and I don't really know where Kamala Harris is. Like, do we know where she is? I've not seen or heard from her, and seems like since since the inauguration. Is there a candidate in the Democratic primary right now that you're that you're supporting? Or are you looking for other candidates? Congressman Dean Phillips from Minnesota. He is running for president. One of his calls was for other Democrats to get in the race. It seems that you're kind of joining his call and asking for more candidates to get in the race and have there be more of a contested primary and nomination process like there is for the Republicans. Yes, because frankly, I think that America can do better than both Biden and Trump. Agreed. Agreed. Well, we are really grateful for your time. Is there anything else you want to share? Anything you didn't get to to talk about that you want to? Um, yes. So on January 6th, my campaign is hosting an expungement clinic. So anybody in Minnesota who is being held back by a mistake from their past, I would highly suggest coming because there's going to be a group of us attorneys at North Commons Park in North Minneapolis um, processing expungement applications for free and just answering legal questions. And there's also, it's also a community resource fair. So there's going to be a table of nurses administering flu shots, doing COVID tests, 
offering information about type 2 diabetes and, you know, substance abuse disorders and other health conditions that are endemic to the 5th District. Um, and we're also going to have a voting registration booth there because there's this misconception that felons in Minnesota can't vote, but they can. Anybody who's 18 years old, uh, over 18, who's a resident of Minnesota, who is not actively serving a prison or parole sentence is eligible to vote. So yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> that's the last thing I wanted to share. Come to my we event. Gotta plug your, we got to plug your website. Where can people follow you and, and stay in touch with your campaign at? Um, GAD2024.com, G-A-D2024.com. And you can also uh, email me, Sarah, GAD2024.com. I, I welcome, you know, any questions, feedback, you know, policy suggestions, dissenting opinions from my constituents. So, yeah, please, um, I'm not asking for your blind support. <laughs> I'm just asking for an opportunity to hopefully earn your support. So Thank you. We want to thank you so much for joining us today and allowing this conversation to happen. And we hope it was an experience that you would maybe consider coming back. We always yeah. want to, every time we have an opportunity to interview someone, it's a privilege. And we hope that the experience was interesting enough that you'd be willing to come back and talk to us again. And we're always willing to, if you have something you need to, to get on the air or talk about, we'd, we'd always have a spot for you. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. And yeah, I, I hope to be back. Thanks so much and good luck. We just interviewed Sarah Gad, candidate for Congress, DFL candidate for Congress in Minnesota's 5th Congressional District. Your take. So I did not know much about Sarah Gad before we started preparing for this interview. Um, you know, I'd heard enough, uh, a little bit on on the campaign trail about, you know, about her background. So I was really interested as I started digging in to hear a little bit more and, you know, from her point of view, some of these articles, her bio. And so I was very excited to hear from her because it's very clear that the struggles that she has gone through, the situation um, since her opioid addiction following her car crash through the struggles with the criminal justice system, and coming out the other side, deciding to go to law school. I mean, I just think it is very clearly made her the person that she is as a candidate, as wanting to step up into this position as to to run for Congress. And I think, like you guys talked about, and, and I want to hear a little bit more from you, because I think it is really important to have voices like yours and voices like Sarah's out in the ether showing that they don't need you don't need to be shamed about your past that you can move forward you can take it as a learning experience and move forward and do more to help others I think I've always been really impressed with you and your efforts to going and speaking to different groups I think it is really commendable and I'm really appreciative about your willingness to to be so vulnerable and raw with that um, and and I think that was really impressive about Sarah too so I liked hearing her story I think it's obviously an uphill battle taking on an incumbent at any time, especially with a crowded field. So um, the path forward is yet to be determined. But it was a really interesting conversation, and I'm glad, uh, one I'm glad we were able to have. One thing that I'm a huge advocate of is instilling in people that people make mistakes in life. And it's one of the things that I touch upon a lot in my speeches that I give to treatment facilities, how important it is that people forgive themselves and be fortunate in the fact that they're alive. And what I identified a lot in, in Sarah's past was 
the struggles that she's been through and how she has uh, risen up from that and what she's doing with her life. She has a purpose-driven life. She has learned from mistakes in her life that she's made and is advocating in such a passionate way. And I think we need more people like that in life. I think there are a lot of people out there who, when they make mistakes, they've kind of put themselves, as I noted in the interview, in a little bit of a prison of their mind. They're not able to move past it. And if we as a society were uh, more tolerant and understanding of people who are legitimately trying to move past their mistakes and have learned through them and not not continue to hold them back, I think we'd be a better place. I disagree with her on some of her policy positions. There's no question. Uh, She's a progressive Democrat. She comes from a different political party and ideology that I do. But I want to just want to establish... I just have a very soft spot in my heart for people who have gone through circumstances where they are trying to lead a new life and moving and have learned from those mistakes. I discussed that story with a lot of people about, you know, Congressman Jim Ramstead's past. Many people in the public life have had problems with addiction and have had issues with drinking and driving and with alcohol. I've been public with mine, but it's not a life sentence. It doesn't have to be a life sentence. And if you embrace it and it's a part of your character and who you are, um, you become very authentic. Um, and that's what I think resonates with voters. I, I believe voters are more likely to vote for an authentic candidate than someone who's fake. And I think Sarah is authentic. I don't agree with her on a, a lot of policy issues, but I'm trying to separate a little bit, mm-hmm. which I appreciate that you particularly allow in these in our podcast to do, separate a little bit from the policy from the person. We try to get to know people and have those types of discussions. So once again, we're starting the year off strong with a good interview, and I'm really appreciated again uh, for the space that we've created and an opportunity to have those types of discussions. I will just ask, I want to get your take on this. It seems out of any of the congressional districts, and I just want to get your take on this, but we have eight congressional districts. We have two U.S. Senate seats in Minnesota. It seems that when anyone files against Congresswoman Omar, it is always through a different lens than any other candidate that gets an incumbent that gets a challenger filed against them. Uh, you, know, you and I are both advocates for democracy. We live in a system where I don't think, I think every election cycle, someone should be challenged. I think we need to have, uh, you know, there needs to be a vibrant discussion on the campaign trail and, and, and have a free flow of ideas. It's part of the reason we host this podcast is we're trying to bring up that type of discussion. But for some reason, it, there's a pattern that I think I've somewhat noticed since we started doing this podcast. When someone files against Congresswoman Omar, Boy, people get angry about that. And much different than I think other members of Congress. If Tom Emmer gets a, a challenger in his primary, or if Jim Stauber did, or uh, Brad Finstead did in the first, uh, I don't know that there would be as much institutional reaction. Am I wrong? Decree, disagree? No, it was something I hadn't really thought of until you just brought it up, but I think it is an interesting point. And I think it kind of comes down to, you know, one thing Sarah mentioned is when she was talking about uh, her decision to run against Omar, she she said, you know, it, it isn't a personal vendetta, although some people try to make it seem like it is. And I think that is almost what it is, right? I think that maybe is is it that Congresswoman Omar has played such a victim in so much of her time in Congress that when somebody runs against her, it is a personal thing instead of a policy thing. You know, Congressman uh, Tom Emmer has had primary challengers, but it is not because nobody ever thinks it's because they dislike Tom Emmer as a human being. They, you know, it's because there's policy differences, right? 
I feel like when somebody runs against Congresswoman Omar, there's this kind of aura that it's because she's Muslim or it's because she's a woman or it's because of all of these other reasons instead of the fact that her policies are bad or because of the fact that she is not responding to the constituents, which is now something that we heard very strongly from both Sarah and Don Samuels is the lack of responsiveness and accessibility of Congresswoman Omar, which I'll come back to. But it's a really good point you make that I really hadn't thought about it, but it does feel as though when somebody steps up against Omar, people make it a personal thing versus a a policy principled thing. Without saying the name, I have a very good guess. We'll discuss the one guess off air as to who the member of the media was that raised that con- that question to her. <laughs> I've I think got a pretty both, good guess too. <laughs> yeah, we can discuss it off air. Yes, I think that Congresswoman Omar has overcome a lot. There's no question she has, but there is, I think, a defensive play that they brush off any criticism or any type of policy criticism into th- th- that personal nature. And I could see uh, how, particularly for, for Sarah, as a Muslim woman uh, running against Congresswoman Omar, who's Muslim, um, and how that can just instantly boil up as the issue. And Sarah Gad like, is. Hey, how a, dare you? You can't. You can't correct. go against a fellow Muslim. She's. She's. Our, we have a Muslim in Congress. Step back. Yes. Yes. And so Sarah Gad is a lot of things, but it's interesting when when she was discussing it, it went right to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, there's a number of things about her um, that distinguish her in, in a different way than Congresswoman Omar. But she would point it out right away that it went right to that. And I think it's something just of interesting. I think that she. I think Congresswoman Omar. And again, I'm not to say that she she hasn't endured. She hasn't had a lot of challenging life experiences, mm-hmm. um, and nor do I have ever perceived or accept or tolerate the level of vitriol that comes her way. But I do think there are situations where, and we've had, I think, the podcast episode that we have with uh, Don Samuels, who was running, there was a response from Congresswoman Omar's office that immediately tried to portray, I think, aside from her criticisms of Samuels, but us, as as taking on this type of attack on her, or we were doing something wrong, and I just just I'm starting to notice that trend, and I and it was just interesting, and I wanted to discuss with you. Go ahead. I also think, especially if you were to put some of these criticisms on anybody else, right? Let's say again, we're going to let's say Dean Phillips because he's retiring. If somebody was saying, "Hey, I've written in, called in, reached out multiple times, never once gotten a response. You got kicked off a committee. You're not serving your constituents because you're not on a committee. You're completely always in trouble. You're because of anti-Semitic remarks." Can you imagine somebody then criticizing another person for opposing or trying to go against Congressman Phillips in the primary, if that was any other candidate, it seems wild to think, why would you dare go against this person? Because she's not serving the people that she is meant to serve. She literally isn't responding to them. She's not holding town halls. She is not sitting on a committee because of her comments and because of her scandalous way of conducting herself in Washington. Now, I'm not saying I, again, support Sarah Gadd or Don Samuels and their policies of this. But it's just wild to me to think that there are people that are up in arms that somebody or, or multiple people are deeming themselves wanting to run against her she's kind of doing a crap job (laughs) and and yeah yeah and the point is is that filing for office is the way to handle it right if you can't i mean there are a number of ways that people express their frustration with their elected officials Uh, they do so through appropriate channels and inappropriate channels people um, will write letters uh, they will 
you know, they can, first of all, they, one way that they can do it is they can vote, vote, vote against them. Um, they can actively campaign for their opponent. Um, there's a variety of inappropriate ways that over the years that people have started to voice, and particularly with social media and other things, voice their displeasure with, um, with their elected official. But running for office against someone is the most democratic, and I would argue patriotic way, to voice your opposition to a candidate. Running for office is patriotic. It is democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's tough work, man. It ain't easy. And so for her to file and run is operating well within the rules and the boundaries of what you're supposed to do. It's the American way. It's what you're supposed to do. It's the best way to be all in. You're mm-hmm. all in when you put when you file for office because you and I both know what that's like. Filing for office, running for office, you're putting yourself out there, you're getting the arrows, you're taking the hits, you're taking the shots. And I'm glad uh, we're starting off the year with uh, compliments and accolades where we're in agreement. Absolutely. Also for the, you also got to bring up Tim Wall's comment again in that interview. Oh, I love, I never miss an opportunity. So Becky, we're going to talk about a very important subject to me. Um, it's now 2024, um, and uh, we're recording this uh, first day, first morning of 2024. And I want to talk about a very important subject. Now, listeners can't see me. Um, it is January 1st. Listeners can't see me. I'm in full Vikings regalia. Vikings lost last night. Uh, it was a New Year's game. Um, I did not go to the game. I want to just let's kind of set the table for a second. Um, families had Viking season tickets since 61. Um, I go every year to games. Last night's game was New Year's Eve Vikings Packers. I usually go Vikings Packers with my wife, but it was New Year's Eve, 720 downtown St. Paul, downtown Minneapolis, excuse me. Um, we have kids. They had some, they had a couple friends over. Uh, my son was at a place at a buddy's house o- overnight. New Year's Eve is just because of, uh, you know, my past in terms of drinking and driving. It's just a night that I just like to kind of stay at home. And so for a variety of reasons, particularly being with parents, this wasn't a good night to go. So I was really, I was kind of bummed about not going to the game, but I was enthusiastic to be at home last night. My wife is a Packers fan um, and and absolutely the worst kind of sports (laughs) fan in a sense that here's what she wants. She just wants both teams to have fun. She wants both teams. She just wants it to be a good game. And it was a garbage game. And I was so frustrated and angry and disappointed. The Vikings lost. There is still a statistical chance they can make the playoffs. But I just wanted to acknowledge again, as we customarily do, on Mondays after the Vikings play, whether they win or lose, I'm in full regalia. And that's where I'm going to start this very brief conversation about our Pick'em League. And I'm in full Vikings regalia. Becky, you, of course have no affinity or loyalty to the Minnesota Vikings. You are married to a, if I understand the story correctly, you're married to someone from Wisconsin. Correct. Um, you, you've decided not to bring, if I may, I'll handle this very delicately, not to bring in the decisions you've made on how to raise your child. But if I understand correctly, based on what I heard at the wedding and other things I've picked across, your husband is a Packers fan. Yes. Your child is... A Packers fan? Yeah. You know, we'll let him make the decision when he ha- is old enough to make a decision. But um, we 
forgot to put him in this Packers shirt yesterday, so he is wearing a Packers little cheese head shirt today. Um, I will tweet a picture out. Ooh. Yeah. Yep, he is. And you are, you're Minnesota. Yeah, you I'm just, school, baby. Yeah. But you don't, I mean. Here's the deal. There are other things. I, I like to give the little wins to the husband so that when it comes back, he, he feels it. good about that. There's a long-term and then strategy. I can, exactly. That's great. That's all I need to know. Long-term strategy. Yeah. Speaking of long-term strategy, um, why, 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 do you want to, who gets to do one. I'm, I'm down by 12 now. I got no long-term strategy. You're down by 12. So I want to just start things off. Um, I'm a huge fantasy football f- fan. We I know. I don't, portray, know. I don't claim to be very good at it. What I am good at good is trash talking. That's what I'm good at. So I participate in three fantasy football leagues. I, I play in a guillotine league, which is a league where you lose. You, one player loses every week. Uh, I didn't last. I never last very long in that league. A uh, story of my life. I didn't last very long in that league. Um, and, uh, so I'm out of that. That's with a group of, uh, uh, couple legislators, Republicans, uh, I think just like a huge conglomerate of people. I play in a very intense fantasy football league with my family. The name of my team is mom and dad's favorite child. (laughs) The name of my fantasy football team. And this year I've been, I'm the reigning champion of the league. I'm also the commissioner of that league. I'm also the reigning champion of that league. And I decided, um, in the spirit of just generosity, to just let somebody else take the title this season. Oh, um, that's it was, so kind. It was all strategic, all wins, all strategic. Go ahead, Becky. If, if Michael's sisters could send me a tweet at Allery RL and, <laughs> and let me know that that is not the case. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, that's where we're at. So someone else decided, which I think is good for the league. I think it's good for the league to have that type of stuff happen. But in the league that really mattered, in the league that was most important to me, the one I put all of my eggs in a basket, Becky, can you do please tell them where who's currently leading in that w- league? Yeah, you're crushing it now. Um, so you're you're sitting on top at a, a healthy four point lead currently over second place. Yes, um, we're in a, impressive. Yes. So my goal again, just for our listeners, uh, was one thing this league. This is the first league of our Pick'em League, which we're going to do next year. Um, assuming that we're here, and I think we're going to be, we're going to do a pick and pick. Now, the one caveat, and even though I'm winning, and it's a very good statistical likelihood that I'm going to win, um, I don't want to say guarantee, but we're getting close. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to clean up the rules a little bit. There were a couple confusions this year about the, the rules. They tripped up Dan Minnesota. They tripped up Becky a little bit. Um, and I'm going to say fair miscommunication. So, there will be a little bit of an asterisk on this year's champion, which will likely be me. It's not going to be an asterisk on the trophy. It's still going to be august. It's going to be obnoxious. And there'll be a crown maybe of some sort or some type of ceremony that Beck and Ann will talk about. We had discussed, just very briefly, um, I'm just thinking about this now. We had discussed some type of prize for the winner. They could come on. And wasn't it something like that? I'm mm. not trying to be funnier. We discussed something. I'll have to go back and look at the archives. Yeah. Um, we discussed something. So as of now, one week left, unless it's a total Minnesota type situation, I'm uh, sitting in mm. a pretty good spot right now. You are. One thing I do want to say is I am proud of both of us and our participants. We all chose the Vikings to win, so they disappointed us all. But um, when it is Packers versus Vikings, it is nice to know that all of us went for our loyalties to the Vikings instead of the likely win from the Packers. 
You went with Detroit, though, versus Dallas. Well, yeah, and I was close. You were close. You were very <laughs> close. You were very close. So I just want to say um, one more week of football, and then we'll be coming back. And a week from when this episode, our next episode, I will be either in complete misery or I will be just dancing, 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 dancing. And we'll see where I'm at. We'll find no. out a week from now. Can't wait. And if we're still doing the podcast later this year, which I think we're going to be, yeah. we should do this again. Yeah, I think it's we great. We do this again. Well, Becky, thank you for uh, starting off 2024 with a, a wonderful guest, a great uh, program, great podcast. And I just want to say again how much I appreciate this opportunity to do this with you. Right back at you. It's been great. Bye. See ya. Thank you for listening to The Breakdown with Broadcob and Becky. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the platform where you listen. You can leave a review or give us a shout out on our website or across all social media platforms at at BBBreakPod. The Breakdown with Broadcore and Becky will return next week. Thank you again for listening.